It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. The FT would you buy a pension from a supermarket, make your charitable donations work harder, and how more government support for banks will affect the savings and mortgage markets? I'm Jonathan Ely, and I'll be giving you all the money news this week in downloadable form with the help of my FT colleagues, Joe Cumbo. Hello. Lucy Warwick-Ching. Hello. And Tanya Poli. Hello. Plus our special studio guest, Maya Prabhu, Executive Director of Philanthropy Services at Private Bank Coots. Good afternoon, everyone. First, most consumers would probably agree that more choice is a good thing, especially when it comes to annuities. Billions of pounds of retirement income are forfeited every year because savers don't shop around when they convert their accumulated savings into a retirement income. The Financial Conduct Authority is already looking into whether the annuity market is functioning properly and the Association of British Insurers recently introduced a code of practice to try and stop savers sleepwalking into a poor deal. But there's been some innovation in the private sector too, with new price comparison websites springing up to help consumers find the best products for them. And one of them is coming from an unlikely source, not a conventional financial services company or an insurer, but the supermarket giant Tesco. Of course, Tesco already has a big personal finance business. Tesco Bank has 6.5 million customers with £5.4 billion on deposit. It also offers mortgages, credit cards and insurance. But this is its first foray into longer-term savings and investment products. Joe Cumbo, who reported the story exclusively in the Financial Times earlier this week, has been finding out more. Joe, just to be clear, Tesco isn't actually going to sell annuities, is it? No, they, they won't be selling their own brand annuities. From what a little information they've put out so far about this... Uh, new service that they're developing, they're going to have an online comparison website for annuities which will be housed on Tesco Compare where you can already go and shop around for better deals on car and home insurance. So what they will do is actually introduce uh, customers to companies which provide annuities and you can shop around and get a quote. Okay, now do we know which company's products it will offer? Will it offer the whole of the market or just a sample? We want to know, but we we won't know for a little while yet. Tesco is just in the early stages of asking the regulator for permission to to launch the annuity comparison service. Presumably, if you're an insurer, Tesco would be a powerful uh, ally to have on your side, that huge customer reach that they have. Well, Tesco is Britain's biggest retailer. 
a, a great name, and it's quite a moment for the um, annuity market because th- this is a very big, high-profile player, and and people know the name Tesco. We know the slogan "Every little helps." Most people will be familiar with that. So I think what it's going to do is increase awareness of shopping around, particularly on the comparison website. And yes, we and there already is a big panel of providers who offer car and home insurance, and we could expect that they will use their purchasing power and their, and their marketing muscle to um, get a good panel of providers there to quote for annuities. And the other thing is, is that they've got 16 million club card customers, which is their loyalty card customers, to market their service to mm-hmm. as well. Now, of course, through that club card scheme, they know an awful lot about their customers, where they live, what they spend their money on and so forth. Are they planning to use that data to, to sell or target to annuity sales? Well, that there, there is suggestions um, that the, that data which has been collected on customers, which you've pointed out, and on your shopping habits, whether you buy donuts, whether you buy healthier food, whether that could be used by annuity providers and handed over from Tesco to annuity providers to help assess annuity income. We know that um, lifestyle is already taken into account when annuity rates are, uh, are priced. Um, but Tesco's told me when I asked them, they have no plans to do that as yet. Will this lead to better annuity rates for consumers, do you think? Well, Tesco already flexes its purchasing power in other sectors, such as all the goods that you can buy, cheaper milk, um, bread, all those consumer goods. But we're not sure yet whether it's going to mean that you going to Tesco or buying through Tesco is going to mean you get a better annuity rate. Annuity rates are at record low, so we would retirees would hope that there might be some improvement. But the raw materials which drive annuity prices are very expensive for insurers at the moment, and the outlook, the market outlook, is for no improvement in the near future. So we'll just have to wait and see. Okay. And finally, why is a supermarket um, getting involved in the annuity business at all? What's the big attraction for them, do you think? There's an increasing focus on shopping around. We've seen that you mentioned a bit earlier with the Retirement uh, Choices Code. People are being encouraged to look at their options. And also, uh, the second thing is that there's a big push towards DIY investment and people being able to do it themselves. And that the pensions market has been way behind other sectors like consumer goods, utilities, car insurance, where people quite easily and readily, and their first point, point of call is to go to a comparison website to compare prices. So it, I think it's just the point at which pensions has finally caught up with the rest of the market. OK, thank you very much, Joe. You can read more about Tesco's entry into the annuity comparison business in this weekend's FT Money. There's also some other important pensions-related news about further reforms to workplace pensions, the vehicle that many Britons use to save for retirement. FT Money is available as part of your regular weekend FT newspaper, or you can read online at www.ft.com forward slash money. If you want to leave comments or ask questions, you can do so online or email us. The address is money at ft.com. Still to come on the show, the impact of the government's funding for lending scheme on mortgage and savings rates. But first, let's look again at charities. Overall, donations to charity are falling, as you might expect during a recession. According to the Charities Aid Foundation, total donations in 2011-12 were £9.3 billion down from £11 billion the previous year. But donations by wealthy individuals as a proportion of their overall income are actually rising. 
charities devote an enormous amount of time to researching wealthy individuals with a view to soliciting donations or support from them. And there's increasing evidence that the better off are also getting pickier about which charities they support. For many of us, the decision about whether to pop some coins into a collection tin or sponsor a friend to run the marathon will come down to whether the cause has personal resonance. But bigger donors are increasingly looking not just at the cause, but the practicalities. Is the charity effectively managed? What proportion of donations is soaked up by administration costs? And how much is it paying its senior executives? These considerations are important, even if you're not Elton John or a hedge fund manager. You may be thinking about supporting a charity through Give As You Earn or leaving a bequest in your will. Lucy Warwick-Ching has been looking at the cottage industry that is charity due diligence. Lucy, if you're thinking of supporting a charity, what should you be looking for? How do you find out how effective it is on the ground? Well, this is the big question that lots of wealthy donors are asking at the moment. There was some controversy earlier in the year when Gina Miller of Miller Philanthropy talked about charity careerists, so people who are more interested in climbing the salary ladder than actually in the cause itself. And she's also suggested that there should be a government initial cap on the amount that charities actually spend on running costs and administration. So the big question that people are asking is, you know, what charities are spending their money on? So Maya, has this always been something that donors are interested in or is this a new trend that we're seeing? And why are people starting to ask these questions now? I think these questions have always been there. I think maybe people are perhaps being a bit more vocal about them now. So when I say that they've always been there, I think administration costs, as you highlighted in your introduction, have always been a great bugbear and a great uh, source of uh, source of irritation to a lot of donors. And we can talk about the rights and wrongs of that, perhaps. OK, let's go into that now then. So is the way that people are looking at things like uh, administration costs, is this important? Are people perhaps paying too much attention to this? What should people be thinking about when they're looking at these factors? In my view, administration costs are a really narrow barometer by which to judge whether a charity is effective or not. And that is really what you want. You want a charity that is really transforming lives and making the sort of change that it it has set itself up uh, to do. And so the problem with administration costs on their own is that, for example, Charity A may put the salaries of its frontline staff into administration costs in their accounts. And Charity B may put it into frontline costs. So therefore, you're comparing apples with oranges when you look at their accounts, whereas it's the same cost. The main thing, therefore, is, in my view, that if a charity is spending 80p in the pound, let's say, on the cause, and that's what it says in their accounts, and that's what they tell you, the key thing is, how effective is that 80p in the pound? Are they really changing something? What are the results of their work? And in fact, one of the big problems um, we have here is that there are there are a large number of charities in this country that are, and in, around the world, in fact, that are, have a very small annual income and annual revenue. And in fact, to grow that income and in order to, to grow the impact of their work, a little bit of investment in their administration, like their computer systems, like hiring a finance manager may actually be good. 
So it's important to look at the balance. Is it possible then for people to compare charities? I mean, imagine not many people are going to want to go and get um, the accounts of a charity and, and look at it and then take another one and, and compare it. I mean, probably what lots of people have is just a glossy brochure that comes through the door. Mm. Should people go for the ones with the glossy brochures or, or is there any kind of simple tips that you can tell yeah. people to choose? I think that there are sort of four things really to look at. I think if I was looking at a brochure or a website or four questions that I would ask. The first thing is, why do you as a charity exist? Why do you do what you do? What is the need for your work? The second thing is, what activities do you undertake to be able to address that need? It could be workshops uh, with young people. Uh, It could be training them to get into employment. What is it that you do? Um, The third thing is, and so by undertaking these activities, what results do you achieve? by activities themselves uh, don't achieve results. The question is, what do they lead to? And how do you know that? And by this, I don't mean measuring results strictly by numbers, because in many cases, you're talking about, you know, human emotions, you could be talking about improving the well being of a young person, you can't necessarily measure that in numbers. But you can do focus groups, for example, to measure in subjective terms, the difference you're making. And finally, you need to look at how well uh, how the organization is managed and governed and uh, does that sort of look and feel sensible. Ideally, if you can visit the charity, um, then you'll get a very good sense of all of these things by asking some good questions. And in terms of the amount of money that people are actually giving, do you mm. see that this changing as we kind of remain in a prolonged recession? I think it's important to note that while some sectors have have suffered and incomes have gone down, in other areas, uh, people have done quite well and continue to make a good amount of money. I think what's really changed, I think, in the last 10 years is that philanthropy has become an important part of what many people do as part of their normal life. If you think of the number of people who run marathons or do lots of different charity challenge events, if you think about the rise of payroll giving, uh, if you think about how the wealthy have uh, have got involved, if you think about the fact that there is a giving list now to go with the rich list, uh, at all levels, uh, the real culture of philanthropy, I think, is is uh, strengthened uh, in this country. So I think that that's, uh, that's going up. Thank you very much. And Lucy was talking there to Maya Prabhu, who is Executive Director of Philanthropy Services at Coots, the private bank. You can read lots more about the business of charities in this weekend's FT Money, You'll also find some very useful tips on how to make charitable giving more tax efficient, both for the charity and for yourself. We also have a case study of a venture philanthropist, a new breed of charity supporter that brings business expertise and even a profit motive to the charitable sector. If you've got strong views on the subject, we'd love to hear them. Do get in touch and tell us either via ft.com stroke money or by emailing us. The address once again is money at ft.com. We finish today by looking at funding for lending. This is the government scheme that offered cheap wholesale funding to the banks on the condition that it was passed on to the homeowners and small businesses of the country. The results of the scheme so far have been mixed. There hasn't, for instance, been much evidence of a big rise in lending to small businesses. But the government and the Bank of England have decided to extend the scheme and alter the criteria to try and target credit-starved small businesses more effectively. Funding for lending has had a significant impact on savings and mortgage rates, though. Some critics have even dubbed it funding for landlords. Tanya Poli has been looking at the impact of funding for lending on both savers and borrowers. Tanya, let's start with the savers. It's 
basically been pretty bad news for them, hasn't it? Yes, um, uh, savers have definitely been the big losers, really, from the Fundy for Lenny scheme. And I think the message really is that it's unlikely to get any better um, in the next coming years basically because of this extension to the Fundy for Lending scheme that was announced um, on Wednesday. Um, if we look back at the launcher scheme back in August last year, um, the um, savers could get a kind of a two-year fixed-rate bond for about um, 3.29%. Um, today, that's fallen to about 2.07%. So there's been this massive decline, and it's not just been um, in one sort of area of the savings market. It's been across the board. So like with um, the sort of average no notice account um, before in August, you could go up 1.09%, which at the time, that's not even that great anyway, because savings rates have been falling um, um, over the last few years as a whole. Uh, but today, you could only get a 0.76%. So it's not looking great. It actually affected the ISA season this year. Um, we, we ran loads of stories at the time about the fact that um, the number of ISA products actually fell dramatically this year compared to last year. Back in 2012, in sort of, you know, around February, March time, which is a traditional ISA season, um, you could have got a five-year fixed-rate bond for 4.4%. This year, you could have only got 2.5% for five years. So they really haven't had much luck over the last last few months. Okay, and why has that happened? What connects funding for lending with the decline in deposit rates? Uh, It basically all comes down to the fact that... um, you know, traditionally, um, banks would um, rely on sort of retail deposits, you know, savers money to actually fund um, fund mortgages. So they would kind of obviously want to attract savers with uh, kind of high attractive savings rates to be able to get in the money to be actually then be able to lend it on to mortgage borrowers. Um, because funding for lending is obviously providing such cheap funding to the banks, they don't really actually need to rely on savers money anymore. So they don't actually need to be paying any high savings rates to attract um, savers. So it's obviously a bit of a, a bit of a loss for for savers. Now, by logic, that would suggest that mortgages um, should have become cheaper. And that is, in fact, exactly what's happened, isn't it? Yes, they definitely have. Um, Well, they keep on getting even cheaper, actually. What we've seen is actually a lot of the banks really focus on the sort of prime low risk area of the market, such as um, sort of homeowners that have deposits of about 40% or more. Um, So we've seen five year fixed rates tumble over the last sort of year or so. Um, you know, back in August in 2012, you could have got an average five-year fix of 4.73%. Today, it's fallen to 3.97%. And that doesn't actually even tell the story, really, because at the moment, we have sort of five-year fixed rates for borrowers with um, deposits of 40% or more at around 2.59%, which is like record lows. And I think there's actually um, going to be some even lower rates launched towards the end of this week. Um, so for homeowners, it's really been a big boost. Um, but as I as I mentioned, that the focus has been on the kind of the sort of bigger deposit area of the market. Um, the funding for lending scheme has slightly helped first time buyers, but not dramatically so. I mean, I think that's the area where the fact that it's been extended, um, a lot of people are hoping that actually this will see banks maybe refocus their attention. They've already played in that kind of prime area of the market. Maybe they'll start to launch more um, high loan to value deposit mortgages. So for people who first time buyers and those with smaller deposits mm. might be helped. So, so you're saying that um, although funding for lending has made mortgages much cheaper, especially for for well-off people with lots of equity or or deposits. It's not necessarily increased the availability of mortgages to the people who really need them that much. Yes, that's that's the point. I think that's um, why actually a lot of people aren't really quite sure whether the um, scheme has been, whether you can call it a successful scheme at the moment, because while it has been successful in bringing down rates um, for a certain segment of borrowers, um, it hasn't necessarily increased the volume of lending yet. Um, we 
haven't seen a big spike in um, sort of lending volumes on um, since it was launched. Um, actually, if you look at sort of the first quarter this year compared to the first quarter of last year when there was no scheme, it's pretty much lending volumes are virtually unchanged. Um, so that's one of the interesting points to make. Also, I think, um, like you have referred to, first-time buyers and other areas of the market haven't been helped as much. I mean, like I say, there is hope that if the scheme continues for longer until 2015, um, lenders could look to kind of target that market next. Okay. And of course, there are two other schemes now that will help target that area of the market. Tanya, thank you very much. There's lots more about the effects of funding for lending in this weekend's FT Money, which you can also read online at ft.com forward slash money. And don't forget that our weekly data bank section contains the latest Best Buy mortgage and savings rates from data provider MoneyFacts, one of the UK's leading suppliers of such data. Other highlights of this week's issue, we have the last of Terry Smith's series on getting the fundamentals of investing right. Ken Fisher, the US fund manager, talks about why the eventual end of quantitative easing might actually benefit rather than harm the stock market. My column looks at the latest proposals for the regulation of investment platforms, while Merrin Somerset-Webb thinks about investing in Russia. We talked to Lord Harris of Peckham about how he made his millions and how he's spending them on schools and horses. Don't forget you can email us at any time. The address is money at ft.com and follow us on Twitter. The handle is just ftmoney and there are links from that page to our individual Twitter accounts. But until next week, it's goodbye from me and it's goodbye from Tanya, Joe, Lucy and our special guest Maya Prabhu from Coots. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.